You are listening to ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. While advocates consider terminal sedation an indispensable palliative medical treatment option, opponents disapprove of it as slow euthanasia. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Susan Dolan, your host, and joining me today is Dr. Timothy Quill, Professor of Medicine, Psychiatry, and Medical Humanities at the University of Rochester School of Medicine and Chairman of the Ethics Committee of the American Academy of Hospice and Palliative Medicine. Dr. Quill, welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. What is terminal sedation? There's a lot of language difficulties with this term. I think I think we should probably distinguish between two types of sedation. One might be considered uh, uh, general palliative sedation, which is the use of sedatives to relieve anxiety or uh, agitation or distress. Uh, palliative sedation should be really not controversial because you're using a proportionate amount of, of sedation to the level of distress of the patient. So again, when if a person's anxious or agitated, you would be gradually increasing the dose of sedation until you get the patient settled, and then you'd be leaving the sedation at that level, hopefully preserving consciousness as much as possible. That, to me, is standard uh, palliative care in hospice. Uh, people who are providing this kind of care should be uh, well uh, able to provide this kind of sedation. More controversial is what might be considered palliative sedation to the level of unconsciousness. So when, and this is also called uh, terminal sedation in some uh, settings, Uh, and this is when you use sedation to treat intractable suffering that can't be otherwise relieved. So usually you've tried usual palliative sedation, it's not worked, the suffering is still severe, and now you're using sedation to render the patient unconscious to escape their suffering. So that's palliative sedation to unconsciousness or terminal sedation. If you, if you sedate a person to unconsciousness and don't provide food or fluids, 100% of those patients will die. So this is a treatment that is on the edges, I think, of, of palliative care. It is something that is important because it gives us a mechanism for responding to the toughest cases, and it's also an important alternative to physician-assisted dying or physician-assisted suicide for those who believe that that is not an acceptable option. And what happened with your father? Well, my dad had Alzheimer's disease with some agitation and restlessness toward the end of his life, sort of one of these. It wasn't rapidly progressive, but it wasn't slowly progressive. But as he became, my dad was a very physical man, and uh, he got very confused toward the end of his life. And then he He also lost the ability to walk, and when he couldn't move around anymore, he could not make sense out of the fact he couldn't move around. So he was forever trying to get out of bed. And so what we did with my dad, who was on hospice, he had been on hospice for a couple of months, is we tried lots of different ways to treat his agitation and to to provide sedation that would allow him to preserve consciousness. And then we gradually, I think, but quite progressively, took his palliative sedation uh, such that he was sedated so that he was just barely awake. So I think he would be uh, in the borderland between palliative sedation that just went progressively to the point of unconsciousness because it was the only way we could keep him from climbing out of bed and falling all of the time. Uh, once he was sedated to unconsciousness, we did leave him at that level of sedation, and he died about two weeks later. And would you do anything differently? With my dad, no, I would definitely not do anything differently. I think what we did was what we should do. He would have no interest in 
dying in a bed, you know, restrained so he couldn't get out, so he could preserve some level of consciousness, he would have found that uh, completely humiliating. And he died in his own home, in his own chair. Uh, I think it was a very humane and dignified death. So I think I think we did what we had to do in that circumstance. Describe the double effect. First of all, the double effect is used in general to justify very high doses of pain medicine. So it's not actually needed to justify most treatment of pain. You know, most treatment of pain is done very safely, and uh, most people are not sedated in any serious or dangerous way with good pain management. So it's usually used in the context of pain management, but it's not needed for that. Pain management, if somebody dies as a result of pain management, it's a side effect. It's not intended in any way. There are circumstances, however, with uh, patients who are very near death, let's say, or patients with severe shortness of breath, where you have to use very high doses. You have to bring doses up very rapidly to treat the pain or the shortness of breath. And you are then taking a, knowingly taking a risk that you're going to produce respiratory depression. And this is where the double effect comes in. So in this case, you're your primary intention or your main intention is to treat suffering that is severe, uh, and that is your obligation. You really have to do that. You can, and the double effect, the second criteria is you can, there, there are some bad effects that can come from this treatment. So you can, in this case, foresee that this treatment is taking a risk of producing respiratory depression. It's not your intention, but you can see that that could happen. You're knowingly taking that risk. Third criteria is that there has to be what's called proportionality. So so you can see that the suffering is so severe that it's worth taking that risk. So severe pain at the end of life or severe shortness of breath is such a debilitating symptom that, that it's worthwhile and proportionate to take a risk with, it, with such a patient. And the fourth criteria of the double effect is that the bad effect can't be the means to the good effect. So you can't end the patient's life to relieve their suffering. That would be beyond the double effect. Now, the double effect comes from Catholic moral traditions, uh, and and so there's nothing about it that is necessarily applicable to, you know, United States or Western medical ethics, but it is used quite regularly to think about these kinds of, of tough cases. The key elements, I think, are the proportionality that the suffering has to be high enough to justify the bad the, the the taking the risk, and that you really acknowledge that you are taking that risk. But the obligation to relieve the suffering is most important. If you're just joining us, you're listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Susan Dolan, your host, and joining me today is Dr. Timothy Quill, discussing terminal sedation. Dr. Quill, tell us about Diane. Diane wouldn't be a case of terminal sedation, but terminal sedation might have been possible for her. She was the woman that I took care of. This is back in the uh, early 1990s who had acute myelomonocytic leukemia at that time, had a small chance of doing well if she were willing to go through very aggressive chemotherapy and a bone marrow transplant, maybe a 25% chance of long-term survival. Diane did not want to go through those treatments, uh, and uh, I, I found that very difficult to accept and really tried to convince her to try them because a 25% chance seemed pretty strong to me. She, Diane was a very strong-willed person, I would say, and, and she said, well, doesn't a 25% chance of surviving mean, mean that there's a 75% chance that I wouldn't survive and that I would die sometime in the midst of this? 
big treatment, and I have no desire to go into the hospital to receive this big treatment. I eventually accepted that she really didn't want treatment, that she knew what she was giving up. Uh, so then we were left with, what do we do then? And so I referred her to hospice, and uh, she was very appreciative of that. She wanted to live uh, well for as long as she could. She loved the hospice philosophy. But she basically said, well, you know, at the very end of hospice, probably bad things are going to happen to me with, with this leukemia, and, and that was true. When things get really bad I, and my life is quality of life is very poor, I want to have I want to skip that part in essence. So when that happens, I'd like to be able to end my life. And this is actually the first time I confronted somebody in more than in theory who really wanted uh, assisted dying. Uh, again, I met with her and her family. To make a long story short, uh, I eventually provided her with medication that she could take at the end of this process. And then she had, she lived for three months on a hospice. During that time, she took antibiotics at different times, blood products to because she was still getting great, meaningful time on hospice. But toward the end of the process, she was now having rigors and fevers, which weren't responding to antibiotics. Her pain was increasing such that, such that to get adequate pain relief, she'd have to accept sedation. For her, being alert and aware were key things. And, uh, and so her life was probably measured in days to at most a week. And again, that would have been her worst nightmare and at that time, then, she did take this overdose after meeting with me. That would have been the end of the story, except for I got the bright idea of writing about this uh, and creating a narrative, which I published in the New England Journal. And uh, this led to a lot of discussion around physicians' role in helping people to die. Uh, since we're discussing terminal sedation, I, I did talk with Diane about uh, terminal sedation as an option, an alternative to assisted suicide for her Terminal sedation seemed, in a certain way, for her as a person, ridiculous because it, it was sort of exactly what she didn't want. She was a person who liked to be in charge of herself. The notion of being sedated to unconsciousness, not being aware of her surroundings, uh, and then dying over the next uh, days to a week or two would, would not have been dignified. And so she, she, that had no appeal for her as a person. What happened because that story was published I did get legal advice before I, I published it, and, and the legal advice was uh, uh, that I, I, I would never be successfully prosecuted as a result of publishing the study, what, what I sub and I had gotten academic legal advice. What I subsequently learned in getting criminal legal advice is that you can go through a serious process on the way to not being uh, successfully prosecuted. But long and short, there was a lot of push for me to identify who Diane really was, did I really make this case up. I was advised not to talk to the legal authorities. She was eventually identified. She had donated her body to science. They eventually proved that she had died the way that the article had said she had died. And I had to appear before a grand jury, which then she, I, I waived my Fifth Amendment rights, told them the story of what had happened. They chose not to prosecute. Uh, and I also had to, there was also a professional review board in New York State that looked at the case, and they said I had acted in line with the tenets of the profession, and, and it led to the task force on life and law taking on the issue in New York State. So it led to a lot of great discussion, but some uh, legal vulnerability on my part. And, and it said why, why outside of Oregon it's dangerous to talk openly about these things. And how do you respond to opponents of terminal sedation who disapprove of it as slow euthanasia? I challenge people who dis disapprove of it to say, okay, well then how should we respond I really challenge them to say, 
these are tough, tough cases. Depends on how you frame it. I think we have an obligation to respond. I think you can view terminal sedation within the lens of the double effect uh, to say, really, your intention in, in sedating people to unconsciousness is to relieve that suffering that you can't relieve any other way. And you have an obligation to do that. And most most opponents agree that with that with that obligation. As long as nobody intends to end the patient's life, opponents can accept terminal sedation in some cases. Now, if the patient's saying, I want terminal sedation because I'm tired of this, I can't stand it anymore, and I really want my life to be ended, then I think it creates more difficulty. Uh, because then it's not quite as neatly within the re- within the realm of the double effect. Dr. Quill, thank you for joining us today. You're welcome. I'm Susan Dolan, and you've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions, send your email to xm at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening. <laughs>